The world recognises the passing of Nelson Mandela in South Africa and the International Space Station celebrates its 15th birthday. The end goal to have this tremendous capability to have an orbiting laboratory operated with permanent human presence for decades is a reality. This is The World with Tim Stackpool. Welcome to the program. First, let's look towards Syria, where the U.S. has suspended all non-lethal aid to northern Syria because they're reluctant to supply anything that may end up in the hands of al-Qaeda or its affiliates. Humanitarian aid will continue, but not supplies of equipment such as radios and body armour. Al Jazeera's Alan Fisher reports from Washington, D.C. It's just days since Islamic Front fighters took control of bases and warehouses in Bab al-Hawa in northern Syria, run by the rebel Syrian military council. The Islamic Front is a union of seven groups, which claims to be an independent political, military and social formation committed to removing President Assad's government and building an Islamic state. That's enough for the US, reluctant to supply anything that may end up in the hands of al-Qaeda or its affiliates. It's now suspended all non-lethal aid to that part of Syria. A significant portion of our policy towards Syria has been dedicated to providing support to those elements of the opposition that are moderate, that are committed to respecting basic human rights, that are committed to uh, respecting the rights of, of, of religious and ethnic uh, minorities and even political, the political minorities uh, in that country. So. That, is, that has been a, a focal point of our efforts, particularly when it comes to the provision of non-lethal aid. Non-lethal aid includes medicines, meals, vehicles and radio equipment. Humanitarian aid will continue to flow and assistance will continue to other areas where the U.S. knows who's getting what. This is about uh, specific uh, military uh, specific uh, material assistance, I should say. Uh, this is not related to our support for the opposition. We still remain firmly supportive of the opposition uh, and of the SMC. Uh, that's why we're in close contact with them. We're gathering the facts. We're consulting with them. We are doing a uh, full uh, evaluation of the inventory, uh, but we remain uh, firmly supportive of the opposition. The U.S. is now working with Turkish authorities and groups on the ground to find out what is under control of the Islamic Front. The U.K.-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says dozens of anti-aircraft weapons and anti-tank rockets were taken. The U.S. alone is committed to pouring $250 million in non-lethal assistance to the anti-Assad coalition. But it wants to make sure anything it gives will end up in the hands of people it regards as friends, rather than those who could turn out to be enemies. Alan Fisher, Al Jazeera, Washington. So now to our coverage of the passing of Nelson Mandela with reports from South Africa, the UK and the US. Thousands of people thronged the FNB Stadium in Soweto on Tuesday to pay tribute to the former South African president who died last week at the age of 95. Incidentally, the official memorial service for the Nobel Peace Prize winner happened to be held on Human Rights Day, observed annually on the 10th of December. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon addressed the ceremony honouring the man who emerged from nearly three decades of imprisonment to become South Africa's first black president and first democratically elected leader. Diane Penn has the story. In eulogizing Mr. Mandela, the Secretary-General also saluted the rainbow nation he helped to create by overthrowing the racist system of segregation known as apartheid. Nelson Mandela was more than one of the greatest leaders of our time. 
He was one of our greatest teachers. He taught by example. He sacrificed so much and was willing to give up everything he had for freedom and equality, for democracy and justice. His compassion stands out most. He was angry at injustice, not on individuals. He hated hatred, not the people caught in the grief. He showed the awesome power of forgiveness and of connecting people with each other and with the true meaning of peace. That was his unique gift. And that was the lesson he shared with all humankind. For UN Human Rights High Commissioner Navi Pillay, Nelson Mandela was perhaps the greatest moral leader of our time. The High Commissioner, who is a South African of Indian descent, also grew up under the stultifying shadow of apartheid. Trained as a lawyer, she had to establish her own firm. No white firms would hire her. Navi Pillay defended anti-apartheid activists and even helped to establish key rights for prisoners on Robben Island, where Nelson Mandela spent most of his incarceration. When he became president, Mandela appointed her as the first black woman judge on South Africa's high court. The day after Mandela's death on the 5th of December, UN Human Rights spokesperson Rupert Colville read a statement on Ms. Pillay's behalf. Nelson Mandela revealed how he had drawn strength from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights during his incarceration on Robben Island. In his last address to the UN General Assembly in September 1998, he noted how the Universal Declaration had validated the struggle against apartheid, but also posed the challenge that, and I quote, our freedom, once achieved, should be dedicated to the implementation of the perspectives contained in the Declaration. He himself never swerved from those perspectives. A truly remarkable man whose example should never be forgotten. Ms. Pillay recalled that following Mandela's release from prison in February 1990, South Africans, herself included, were boiling with a burning desire to get back at those responsible for apartheid. But she said Mandela urged his countrymen to put aside their vengeance and instead work for a South Africa that was not just free of racism, but free of all types of discrimination. Diane Penn, United Nations. Nelson Mandela also had huge support in London during his struggle against apartheid. ANC members spent time in the city, and the anti-apartheid movement was set up there as the centre of the international campaign in support of South Africa's non-white community. And its members used London as a base to lead the economic sanctions campaign on the apartheid government. But Margaret Thatcher's government resisted international pressure over sanctions on South Africa, and she described the ANC in 1987 as a terrorist organisation. However, following their deaths, their relationship and Margaret Thatcher's stance on apartheid in South Africa are being re-examined. Here's Ollie Barrett reporting from London. When Nelson Mandela met Margaret Thatcher at Downing Street in 1990, there were concerns it could be a frosty affair given her position on sanctions and her relationship with the apartheid government. His friendly demeanour was read by her critics as a sign of his capacity for forgiveness. But her closest allies say it was more than that. Among them, Lord Rennick, former ambassador to South Africa, who told me her stance on the country 
has been misunderstood. I was her envoy to the apartheid regime. We spent all our time trying to dismantle it and get Nelson Mandela released. Current leader of Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party, David Cameron, may beg to differ, though. He famously denounced Mrs Thatcher's branding of the ANC as terrorists and said the Conservatives got it wrong on sanctions. And many anti-apartheid campaigners still need convincing over her policy towards the ANC and Nelson Mandela. Lord Bob Hughes was chair of the British anti-apartheid movement. If I had been him, I would have told her where to go. But he didn't. Nelson Mandela did visit Margaret Thatcher at Downing Street and those in attendance, including Lord Rennick, remember a pair surprisingly on the same page. I was there. I even had a dress rehearsal with him for the meeting with Margaret Thatcher. He walked out into the street and thanked her publicly for everything she'd done to help secure his release. He said, and I quote, we have a lot to thank her for, and on his subsequent visits to London, after she ceased to be Prime Minister, he used to make a point of going to visit her to thank her again for what she did. But unlike Nelson Mandela, the late Margaret Thatcher remains a divisive figure in Britain. And so her role on the apartheid era and her stance towards Nelson Mandela himself looks likely to be debated for many years to come. This is Ollie Barrett in London for The World. The British Prime Minister David Cameron has described Nelson Mandela as a pivotal figure for South Africa and the world during a day of tributes from politicians in London. Dan Whitehead has this report. Flowers continue to be laid and candles are still burning for Nelson Mandela in London. But today it was the politicians who paid their respects. MPs and lords in Westminster having their chance to say what Mandela meant to them. It is with sadness that we meet here today to remember Nelson Mandela. But it is with gladness that we can say this. It was a long walk to freedom, but the walk is over. Freedom was won. And for that, Nelson Mandela has the deepest respect of this house and his enduring place in history. Prime Minister David Cameron was joined by the former Labour Prime Minister Gordon Brown in paying tribute. He admired and respected Her Majesty the Queen. And he told me that he wanted uh, the Queen to invite an African rain princess from his tribe to a reception at Buckingham Palace. And he'd got nowhere with the diplomatic diplomatic channels. So he decided to telephone her personally. And the story goes of the conversation that words that only Mandela could use. Hello, Elizabeth. How's the Duke? As the public continue to leave tributes at South Africa House in Trafalgar Square in London, this was a chance for politicians to pay their respects to Nelson Mandela. The Prime Minister and all MPs keen to ensure Mr Mandela's political legacy lives on. This is Dan Whitehead in London, reporting for The World. And one of those UK politicians with close connections to Nelson Mandela is the British MP Peter Hayne. He grew up in South Africa and his parents were anti-apartheid activists. He moved to the UK as a teenager and became a lead figure in the anti-apartheid movement in Britain. He was also chairman of the Stop the 70 Tour campaign, which disrupted tours by the South African rugby union and cricket teams in 1969 and 1970. He spoke with Dan Whitehead about Mandela's impact on British politics. Parliament wants to pay its respects to Nelson Mandela, who had a touching faith in British parliamentary democracy here, even when the majority in Parliament and the the government of the day did not support him. 
or the African National Congress or the anti-apartheid movement that we organised to try and get Nelson Mandela free and South Africa liberated. It was the anti-apartheid movement, which was strongest here in Britain, that fought for his cause, that fought for the freedom for all South Africans, regardless of uh, race, uh, that fought for the abolition of and the overthrow of apartheid through sanctions and boycotts, interrupting Springbok tours, preventing them from touring, trying to get British companies, instead of propping up apartheid, to disinvest. That struggle, that campaign, was the one that brought about Nelson Mandela's release, as he never tired of saying. What will his political legacy be to not only South Africa, but politicians worldwide? To South Africa, it'll be the person, the leader, the only leader who could have made the transition from a bitterly divided country to a nation, the rainbow nation that we saw under his presidency and continues today. To the world, he stands for not just his courage and his strength of leadership, which were immense, but also for being such a wonderful person, a people's person. His humanity radiated like a warm glow from him. And that is why I think he's held in such universal affection right across the world, regardless of country, everywhere. Uh, he is the one leader that everybody uh, uh, looks up to, and that says something for him. Tell us about maybe some times with you. You've met Nelson Mandela. Um, what was he like as a person to meet? He was a fantastic person to meet, not just because you realised you were in the presence of greatness. That was just... Uh, apparent being in the same room as him, but because he was such a nice person. And that isn't the case with a lot of world leaders. He was a genuine people's person. He, for example, when I mentioned to him after in, he'd inquired after our family that my mother had broken her leg in hospital, he said, I must speak to her. I had to get my mobile phone out, track down uh, the phone number, I didn't have it, find her finally, uh, while he was chatting to hotel porters and waiters and cleaners. He always had time for the ordinary person. Finally, I got her on the phone and said to my mother, there's a special person to speak to you, handed the phone to him, and he said, this is Nelson Mandela from South Africa. Do you know who I am? He had that impish, mischievous sense of humor, uh, and he, uh, he, he, he always was teasing everybody he met. Obviously, at the moment, we're, we're re-watching Mandela's speeches and we're, we're talking about uh, what his, his legacy is. How will that legacy be ensured and how will it be maintained for future generations? Well, Nelson Mandela's shoes are very big ones to fill. Maybe impossible. But the leaders that have followed him need to do much better to step up to the values, the mark that he set, the very high standards he set of absolute honesty and integrity and principle regardless of whether it suited his party or his government or not. That's missing a bit in South Africa today. And whilst the African National Congress uh, still reflects the values of democracy and social justice that Ma Nelson Mandela preached, it's still necessary that the leadership uh, puts into practice th those values much more effectively. And let's just talk about that, South Africa uh, as it is now. What are your concerns for the country? Uh, he obviously hasn't been an active politician for some time, but his presence alone uh, had a, a dominating effect. What are your concerns for the country going forward? I'm very optimistic about the country. It has a wonderful uh, amount to offer, a good economy, strong financial and banking system, and also a, a, a constitution which is to be admired the world over. What now needs to happen is the government at all levels, from local to national level, needs to focus relentlessly on delivery 
of the money that has been put into schooling, for example, the highest spending per child of almost anywhere in the world, but one of the poorest performances in educational standards of almost anywhere in the world. There's got to be a focus on delivery, got to get rid of the corruption and go back to Nelson Mandela's teachings and his inheritance. This is The World with Tim Stackpool. A memorial service has been held in London itself to celebrate the life of Nelson Mandela. It was held at St Martin's in the Field, a church that sits opposite South Africa House and was at the centre of the global anti-apartheid campaign. Veterans of that campaign gathered to remember Mandela, joined by younger generations who've been inspired by his life. Catherine Drew reports. For those who could not attend Johannesburg, the London Memorial was a fitting tribute for the leader who had touched so many. Veterans of the anti-apartheid movement sat with younger generations to reflect on the life of Nelson Mandela and to share their memories. South African-born Joel Joffe worked as a human rights lawyer in South Africa before later moving to the UK and becoming a distinguished lawyer. He now sits in the House of Lords but recalled his time representing Nelson Mandela at the Rivonia trial. At this moment he paused a long pause in which one could hear a pin drop in the court and then looked squarely at the judge and finished. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. And then dropping his voice very low, he added, but if needs be, it is an idea, ideal for which I am prepared to die. He sat down in a moment of profound silence from the public benches, one could hear people release their breath with a deep sigh as the moment of tension passed. Some women in the public gallery burst into tears. We sat like this for perhaps a minute before the tension ebbed and the trial continued. Lord Joffe ended his remarks, noting the former president's mischievous sense of humour. I cannot end this talk without mentioning Madiba's lovely smile which lit up the world around him, nor his mischievous sense of humour. A typical example was, was when on one of his trips to England, he spotted me in his audience and announced in a loud voice and with a mischievous smile, there is Joel Joffe who sent me to prison for 27 years. <laughs> Thank you. Another speaker was veteran ANC activist Tembi Nobadula, who took part in the 1956 Women's March to the Union Buildings in Pretoria. She described how when he had just become president, Nelson Mandela spent hours listening to the concerns of her women's group about reconciliation. He told us he was a president of South Africa, not a president of only those who were oppressed by apartheid. He told us that he had to liberate everybody in South Africa, otherwise his job would not have been done if he didn't. He said the architects of apartheid are the very people that should be liberated first before anything is done. Because if those were not liberated, then South Africa would not be free. He brought together people who are enemies. You saw the President of the United States shaking hands with the President of Cuba. That is Mandela. This is what he stood for. There were hymns and, of course, singing and dancing, which spilled out onto Trafalgar Square after the memorial was over. 
Christmas shoppers and tourists stopped to take photos of the choir that sprung up on the steps of the church. Those present lingered, many old friends, in a struggle that produced camaraderie across two countries. Outside, Sir Sidney Kentridge, a South African-born lawyer and judge who had represented Mandela and his fellow defendants in the treason trial, spoke of the continuing interest in Britain about events in South Africa. There's always been a sort of special interest in this country about what happens in South Africa. There's a feeling that they want to see South Africa do well. Just as in Johannesburg, the London Memorial was not only a time for mourning, but a chance to celebrate the life of Nelson Mandela, to remember his ideals and to pledge to continue that work. This is Catherine Drew in London reporting for The World. People in the United States are sending condolence messages to the Mandela family. It's become part of the healing process for people who were unable to travel to South Africa for the ongoing memorial. Lindsay Masters reports from Los Angeles. There is a steady flow of people taking turns sitting at a large table in a private room at the South African consulate. In middle of the table is a book where they're writing their messages and memories. You were a great inspiration in my life. Mandela, you were a great leader and inspiration. Nelson Mandela had exceptional courage. There is a tangible sense of sadness here, especially for Ilda Diffley, who is from Cape Town. It's very difficult to not be in South Africa at this time. She won't be able to travel home as her nation mourns, so she came here to write her condolences. She previously met Mandela twice. She reads part of her message. He taught me to be a better person, a better Afrikaner, and allowed me to be a part of the Rainbow Nation. Others are devastated they will never have the chance to meet him. Wadimya Aminya is from Kenya and witnessed violence in her country. She considered Mandela to be a savior. Because I've always said the one person I want to meet in my life is Nelson Mandela. I just wanted to hold him, thank him, appreciate him, and just tell him how much he meant to me. It seems unlikely the Mandela family will be able to read all the notes being sent their way. But people like Jacqueline Elkihani says it doesn't matter because just writing the messages have become part of the healing process. If anyone gets to read it, that's wonderful. If not, it's really something from my heart and I know it's from the right place and it's going to make a difference. The condolence book will be sent to South Africa's Department of International Relations and Cooperation. And from there, it will likely end up at the Nelson Mandela Foundation. This is Lindsay Mastis in Los Angeles for The World. This is The World with Tim Stackpole. And finally, to a different story now. One of the most ambitious construction projects ever undertaken turned 15 years old this past week. The International Space Station is an orbiting science lab and NASA hopes it'll play a crucial role in research aimed at eventually getting astronauts to Mars. But the ISS isn't without controversy, as Steve Mort reports from Orlando. 
Construction began on the International Space Station 15 years ago, and it's been permanently occupied by astronauts since Expedition 1 blasted off in October 2000. The complex has more livable room than a six-bedroom house and even has a gym. The orbiting outpost has become a symbol of international cooperation, but also a lab where science experiments can be carried out in zero gravity. Nancy Curry was one of the members of the crew of the first ever space shuttle mission to the ISS. The end goal to have this tremendous capability to have an orbiting laboratory uh, operated with, uh, you know, permanent human presence for decades is a reality. And, uh, you know, it was uh, just wonderful to be there from the start and literally turn on the lights. But it wasn't always plain sailing for the International Space Station. Critics have called the ISS an orbiting white elephant at a cost of $150 billion to build. Some have questioned the need for the station. Astronaut Jerry Ross, a mission specialist who was also on the first shuttle mission to the ISS, says early on there was a perception among the public that NASA was squandering money on the project. Well, that was one of my frustrations uh, early on with the stations. We weren't doing as much science, or at least it wasn't being uh, well enough explained or spread. Uh, and I kept pestering people to do better job of, of getting the information out not only to the public, but also to the astronaut office, so we had more knowledge that we could spread when we were out visiting and talking to folks. With America's shuttle fleet now consigned to history, Russia's taking the lead on carrying astronauts to the International Space Station, upsetting some veterans of NASA's manned spaceflight program. But in 2015, a Russian cosmonaut and an American astronaut will begin a one-year mission to the ISS aboard a Russian Soyuz. Alexei Krasnov is Russia's director of piloted space programs. We should uh, take uh, some risks upon ourselves, uh, risks connected with the one-year mission, and we'll try to determine uh, the negative impacts that this long-duration flight uh, might have on the body, on the human body. But at the same time, China's stepping up its efforts to build its own space station. Beijing is not part of the International Space Station program and expects to have its own orbiting outpost finished by 2020, complete with an ability to house three long-term residents. This is Steve Morton Orlando reporting for The World. And that is The World for this week. And just a reminder that after a little over two years of broadcasting, this program will cease at the end of the year. But as always, a new year brings new challenges as well as new opportunities. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about the program, don't forget you can always keep in touch by visiting www.theworldradioshow.com. For the rest of the month, the world remains committed to bringing you the issues affecting the people of our planet, either on a mass or individual scale. And we hope to do so with balance and integrity. I'm Tim Stackpool, and on behalf of our contributors right around the world, we look forward to your company next time. Until then, bye-bye for now.